Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning to all of you who are here today. I bring you greetings from North Wake Baptist Church where I'm a member and under whose authority of the elders there I bring this message to you today. And I also want to bring uh, just a thanks to Dr. Aiken today for allowing me. I know he guards this pulpit and so the privilege to come up here and be able to open the word with you is, is sweet to me and I'm very thankful for that. I also want to take a second today to just welcome all the folks who are here for our Sabbath Rest and Flourishing Conference. We've, that's going on over the last uh, 24 hours. We're going to finish that up today. We have the privilege of having Dr. Uh, Matthew Sleeth and his wife Nancy here to lead that conference and it's been a real joy for all of us who are taking part of that. Our, our passage of scripture that we're going to focus in on today is Psalm 46. So if you want to make your way there, we're going to focus in on verse 10 today, Psalm 46.10, but in order to really dig into that particular verse, we're going to need to spend time thinking through the entirety of Psalm 46 to kind of build up. The, the text builds in a crescendo towards verse 10, and we would do a dishonor to verse 10 if we didn't work through the whole passage. So let me read that for us, and then after I do so, I'll pray for us, and uh, during that time, I'd love it if you'd pray for me. And then we'll dig into the text itself. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Father, wait, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, my rock and my redeemer. And may you increase and I decrease as we engage your word. Amen. In his very insightful book entitled The Life You've Always Wanted, pastor and author John Ortberg makes the following observation. He says this, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. For many of us, the great danger is not that we would renounce our faith. 
It is that we would become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for some mediocre version of it. Ortberg goes on to describe the problem in American culture. He describes it, he coins the term hurry sickness for it. He says, we want our pizzas delivered in 30 minutes or less. We line up in restaurants that have horrible food, not because the food's good, but because it's fast. We, we are, we're addicted to devices that are promised to give us convenience and efficiency and, and more time, but the more time we spend with them, Study after study after study shows that actually they rob us of the things that we find most valuable in life. I was recently traveling um, on the other side of the planet and I, I ran into an article that I read there on Yahoo News and it was interesting they said that uh, the, the title of the article is the number one thing you can do with your cell phone to improve your sex life. And you know what the number one thing was? Study after study now showing this. The number one thing couples can do is turn their cell phones off. Isn't that fascinating? Ortberg goes on to point out that all of our efforts to get more done in less time have not produced what we are after. He points out this, he says, American society is rich in goods, it's extremely time poor. Many societies in the two-thirds world, by contrast, are poor in material possessions by our standards, but they're rich in time. They're not driven or hurried. They live in the sense that there's adequate time to do what needs to be done with each day. So what happens to us is that we then live in a culture of anxiety and stress and worry. According to the National Institute of Health, some 40 million Americans, nearly one in seven of us, are suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder at any given time, accounting for 31% of the expenditures in mental health care in the United States. And according to recent data, Lifetime uh, incidence of anxiety disorders tells us that 25% of us sometime during our life in the United States can expect to be, dis uh, to be afflicted by debilitating anxiety. Think about that. One in four Americans. Now, another article done uh, in Psychology Today by a fellow by the name of Dr. Ch Kevin Chapman, he notes that in the United States in particular, Western society as a whole, but in the United States in particular, Americans are particularly susceptible to anxiety disorders. And he says this is the case for two reasons, two different uh, trends that happen are cultural factors. He says one's called the normalcy bias. Listen to this quote. He says, the common thread in those of us who, suc who succumb to the normalcy bias is attempting to live above our means, trying to keep up with others who appear more successful, and that money is the key to happiness, and that I will be accepted if I have more things. The normalcy bias. The second factor, he says, which is a leading cause of anxiety in our culture, is what he calls the need for achievement. And here's the quote he says about this. The need for achievement can be construed as a social need that directs people to strive for success and excellence, accomplishment and influence. No one could argue that against the notion that most Americans are conditioned to be very high in achievement motivation, with many of us learning over time this math equation, high achievement equals happiness. He goes on to say at the end of his article that the biggest issue is that many of us place our achievements as the most important part of our identity. 
And as evangelical Christians, I think we would have to say that we're not immune from these tendencies. In fact, it seems that what we tend to do is camouflage or even baptize our tendencies to rush, 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 more, 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 grab, grab, grab. And I I know this, I'm guilty of this in myself, that when we think about what it means to be a success in ministry, we ask questions like, how many people are at your church? How many people are coming to your home group? How many hours do you work a week? How many emails were in your inbox this week? How much giving is taking place? What kind of titles do you have by your name? And if any of you have ever received an email from me, I was, came under conviction from this. So you look at the tagline where my name signs on my, my email signature, and it's got far too many things. And I wonder sometimes if I'm trying to wear this as a badge of honor in front of you, if I've just kind of been swept up into this achievement idea. The story's told of a little girl who's dressed in her Sunday best, and she's trying to run to her Bible study class, and on the way, she's running along the, the campus of her church, and, and she prays, dear Lord, please don't let me be late for class. Please don't let me be late for class. Please don't let me free, as her little legs are running. And as she's running along, she trips, and she falls off a curb, and she, she tears up her dress, and she gets dirty, but, but being undaunted, she gets up, and she brushes herself off, and she starts running again, and she prays, dear Lord, please don't let me be late but this time please don't shove me. <laughs> and, and maybe this is the problem. Isn't it the case that we often feel like God's pushing us to run faster and faster and faster? When in reality, maybe the, the message that he's saying is diametrically opposed to that. Maybe success in ministry is not measured by the measuring tape of what I achieve, but who God is and who I am before him. So in the midst of all this hurry and rushing, God has a specific message for his people that I think rumbles all the way through both the Old and the New Testament, but it becomes thunderously explicit here in this particular passage of Psalm 4610. Be still! Know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. So if you will, let's look at Psalm 46 more directly And in order to do so, let me first walk you through the context of it, and then what we'll do is we'll look at the structure and some of the content of the verses that are leading up to verse 10. Context-wise, Psalm 46 has some affiliations with other psalms, Psalm 48, Psalm 76, Psalm 84, Psalm 87. All of these are called Zion psalms. And Matthew Henry comments that Psalm 46 is likely penned upon the occasion of one of King David's military accomplishments among neighboring nations in which God then gives peace to the nation of Israel. He he in particular cites 2 Samuel 8. There are others that would say 2 Samuel 11. But the key for us is as we come to this passage, it's important to understand that the context of the psalm is shaped by war and battle and a flurry of activity, and anxiety, and stress, and worry. Things are moving. And in the midst of this, God gives us these instructions. And this led the great reformer Martin Luther, uh, as as he thought about this psalm, it it moved him to pen the words to a, a great hymn known as, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Luther was known for saying that when he heard any discouraging news, he would, he would call his friends and his brothers around him, and he would say to them, come, let's sing the 46th Psalm as a reminder of the greatness of God and who's ultimately in control. Isn't that cool? 
Now, the structure of Psalm 46, if you look at it, you'll see that it's broken up into three main passages within the the one psalm. You have verses 1 through 3, 4 through 7, and then verses 8 through 11. And each of these three movements is then finished or punctuated with the word selah. Now, the term here normally is indicating some idea of pause or crescendo even for a songwriter or singer. So with the idea here, the purpose is as you're reading through the psalm and you come to a break after each of these sections, it's not only a pause to contemplate, but it's also a swelling of of intensity as you move towards the end of the psalm. It's a pretty cool writing method that's going on here. So let's look at the first three just real briefly to get a sense of these here. Notice that the description of the tumult that's taking place in the created order So in the passage here you say, though the earth should change, and though the mountains should slip into the sea, and though the waters would foam and roar, and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, almost unimaginable circumstances of catastrophe taking place around causing great anxiety, but for the people of God, there's no need to be alarmed. There's no reason to have anxiety. It's as if the writer is saying that the created order, God is completely in control of it. It's as if the the writer of the psalm is stepping out and saying, even if the very ground upon which you are standing should melt away under your feet and collapse, no fear. God is your refuge. And then moving from that one into the second section, Psalms or, or verses 4 through 7, the nations now are raging. It's not the planet itself, it's the nations that are raging. If you will, look at verses 4 and 6 and compare them to one another. In verse 4, there, there's a gentle river that flows in the city of God. And the city of God is glad. But the nations are in an uproar. The nations... They make noise, and they boast, and they fume, and they fight, and they claim allegiance, and they seek to be exalted as the superpower over all the nations before whom everybody else must bow. They rely on military supremacy to bring others into submission. But in the city of God, a river flows. God's city is firmly planted, and you know the reason why that's the case? Verse 5, God is with us. He's in our midst. It's as if the psalmist is saying to us, even though all the nations should rise up in war against the people of God and attack them with all of their wrath, the very best they could muster is nothing compared to the strength of the Lord. The Lord of hosts is with us. Do not be anxious. God is our stronghold. And then verses 8 through 11, where we'll find our particular verse for today. Behold, God and what he can do in verse 8. Wars? Come on, man. Wars? Is that the best you can do? Really? Compare the power of our God to the war weapons of our enemies. God can make any desolation happen on the earth. The nations come with weapons against God. Really? Are you serious? The psalmist is saying to us, really? Look what God does with the nation's weapons. The bow, the long-range weapon, perhaps for us, the, the nuclear missile. Pfft. Huh. The spear, 
Perhaps for us, something more along the lines of the machine gun. God just snaps it in half. Oh, good try. The shield or the chariot, depending on your, your translation there. Ha! Huh, you got nothing. Really? You're going to bring a tank against God? No matter what the enemy hurls our way, God is not faced. He is not in fear. He is not in doubt. He is in total and absolute command, and he will win the day. And it's as if the psalmist is saying to the nations that rage, bring it on. Bring it on. Let's see what you got, because the Lord of hosts is the exalted God of the universe, and he is our stronghold. And this then helps us to see perhaps three repeated themes that come out throughout Psalm 46 over and over and over again. Let me point them to you and summarize these ideas for you here. First repeated theme that's come up several times is this idea that God is our refuge. Notice that the focus of each movement and the purpose of each verse is to draw our attention to God himself. In this short 11 verses here, we see that God is directly referred to 18 different times. The focus of the text is on God, not on circumstances. As we gaze at who God is, something begins to happen to us. The psalm itself bookends, it begins with the word God as our refuge, and it ends with the idea, the primary comfort that he's our stronghold, and this idea that God is our refuge flows throughout the entire text. The second repeated theme that comes out is that it's not just important to know who God is, but that that God is with us. God is with us. Verse 1 says, he is the present help. And as my version here, the New American Standard says, a very present help in time and some trouble, this could also be interpreted to mean that he is abundantly available to help in times of need. Think about that sweetness. It's not just that God has all power, but that God is with us, and he's abundantly available to help you and to help me. Verse 5 tells us that God is in the midst of Israel. Verse 7 says it's the Lord of hosts who is with us. And if, if we didn't get that clear enough, verse 11 repeats it, the Lord of hosts is with us. So not only is God able, but God is with us. And so the third primary theme of the text, which will lead us specifically to our verse, you can see it in verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. So let's look specifically at verse 10 then and notice this first phrase that comes out in verse 10. It's interesting, if you read this, one of the things you notice, if you look down at your text there, you'll see the entire psalm is written in a second-person form. In other words, it's almost as if someone's standing at a podium telling the story about God. But when you get to verse 10, something changes in the text, in the, in the, the way that the, the text shifts. It's almost as if God's in the background. You know, sometimes we have at graduation, we have chairs up here, and someone will be speaking. Imagine if God was sitting in one of those chairs and someone's telling his story. And it gets to this verse 10, and it's almost as if God stands up and moves this person out of the way and says, all right, I got to tell this myself. Be still. He breaks into first person narrative, and he says, be still. It's almost as if he can't contain himself. There's something so important that we need to hear. He's coming up to the microphone, and he exclaims this to us. Now, the words be still, some of your Bibles may have the words cease striving in there. Some of the basic ways for us to think about this would be consider the idea of stop, contemplate, 
ponder, cease and desist. Because it's a military context, you might even have the word in our context to understand it. It's as if someone says, attention, and everybody stands up and says, okay, what do you have to say? It's an important part for us. It's an imperative. God is commanding us to stop and to pay attention. This reminds me of a story of actually something that took place in my life here at Southeastern about 10 years ago. I was a um, a younger professor, and, and for those of you who are not in the teaching profession, particularly at this uh, college or academic level of uh, postgraduate, one of the things that we struggle with as professors is that we always want to get ourselves published. It's an important part of our, our, uh, our academic rigor for us to, to have things published. It's good for not only our own careers, but it's also really important for the institution that we work at as well as the students that eventually will study under us. And so a big part of the, uh, of the growth curve as a professor is to publish. And I was in my third or fourth year here and I was, I was getting pretty anxious because I didn't have a book out and I really wanted to get some writing done. And my dear friend, uh, our, one of our professors here, Alvin Reed in the uh, evangelism department, he was willing to write with me. We had some ideas that were kind of coalescing at the time together. And I remember one specific day we went to Applebee's restaurant and we're sitting in Applebee's, and I'm in the, in the, uh, at the table there, and I'm just getting more and more anxious as we're talking. I'm like, Alvin, I really think God wants me to write something, and I want to do it with you, and I, I really feel I have something to say. And, 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 and I was getting all worked up there in the, in the lunch, and Alvin finally said to me, Mark, would you just chill? And I remember sitting there at the booth going, yeah, why am I so worked up? And Alvin's next word was really important. He said, God's in control. And sometimes I think we need good friends to say to us, yo, chill. And so perhaps the modern translation of be still would be those words. Yo, chill. Chillax. It's all right. God's in control. Would you rest a little bit? Be still. Don't get so worked up about this. You know, as I was, I was going through this passage and I was preparing to preach this, it was interesting where other texts of Scripture started to ricochet around in my mind. And, I, and I, I started to think of Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And that, I won't flip there today, but in that particular passage of the Scripture, what takes place is that the disciples are traveling with Jesus across a lake. And the storm swells up, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping in the boat. And all the disciples, they get all worked up and they're wondering. They're probably bailing water out of the boat and they're all, they're all freaked out. And they finally wake Jesus up. And you know what Jesus stands up and says? He says, hush, be still. And as I was thinking through this text, it, something made me think, I wonder, who was he talking to? Was he telling the storm to be still? Or was he telling his men to be still? I think probably some version of both. Because we know the storm calmed. But if you read that text, what happened to the men? All of a sudden, they're quiet. And they're asking a new question. Who is this that's in the boat with me? You see, the salvation, they started to realize it wasn't the boat. It was the one in the boat. Hush. Be still. The text moves on from there, and it tells us to know. The word know here, I think, is probably best understood if you'll think of it in terms of the Hebrew meaning as opposed to maybe the Greek. The distinction between those is oftentimes understood to be the Hebrew meaning would give us more of a sense of wisdom and actual relationship. 
have a relationship that's wise with the living God. Not just information about that God, which would be perhaps more of a Greek meaning, but here from the text, no, it's an invitation to know. And what you're being invited is, is to know that God is God. Now, there's, there's two senses in which we can get us this idea. When he says, know that I am God, it's the sense of, do you know who I am? As well as, come get to know me. On the one level, the do you know who I am, this is related to the perspective about the nature and character of God himself. Becoming aware of who you are dealing with. Have you ever had that experience where you're kind of hanging out and you're talking with someone and then all of a sudden you, you realize that they're maybe like the president of the institution and your attitude changes a little bit? You ever had that, Danny, where students didn't know who you were and then all of a sudden they, oh, you're, oh, yeah, okay. And then all of a sudden... We used to have some friends in Denver that we'd go out and hang out with some, uh, and they, they were uh, new Christians, and they had lots of non-Christian friends. And uh, when we would go to parties with them, they would introduce my wife and I as their Christian friends. They were a little bit afraid of what their other friends would do, and they were also probably a little afraid of how we would respond on that. So as soon as the phrase, these are our Christian friends, came out, the whole attitude of the room changes, you know? Well, there's a sense in which the text here is saying, know who I am. But there's also a sense in which this is an invitation. Imagine if that president of the seminary or of the United States just simply called you up and said, hey, I'd like you to come over. I want to get to know you. And you're thinking, me? Really? Wow. That's cool. And so there's a sense for this as you come to this particular passage and it says, be still, know that I'm God. There's a sense that for the enemy of God, just the raw knowledge of who God is, the experience that they're going to have at that moment is, "Uh uh-oh, this one's far greater than I am. For the friend, this is going to be, wow, really? You want to spend time with me? And perhaps... And maybe this is the central sense of the text here. For the child of God who's maybe lost a little bit of the luster of who God is, maybe it's a little bit of the raising of the voice to remind you. I think of my own children at times when they're running crazy when they were little, and they'd be running crazy around the house. I didn't raise my voice a whole lot. In fact, I've probably done it more in this sermon than I do typically in my whole year of my life. But as, as my kids would kind of fuss around the house, sometimes I'd have to say, hey! And because I don't raise my voice a whole lot, that hey would stop them dead in their tracks, and sometimes they'd get a little scared. And my response then would always be to gather them in my arms and hug them. And I wonder if that's not what's happening here in the text. Hey, would you chill? I love you. Now, when God calls us to chill, when he calls us to stop, We have to understand that this call to stop is also a call to spend time with the king. Be still. Stop. Get to know me. Know who I am. I am the God of the universe. And as you come to know me, what we have to realize as people is this is going to require time and effort on our parts to draw near to this living God. And so when you see the phrase, be still or cease striving, it's important for us to understand that this is an invitation out of the whirlwind But it's not just an an invitation out of something. It's an invitation into something. It's a wondrous invitation into a relationship with the king of the universe. And so when God calls us to stop, he's actually calling us to flourish. 
And it's in this light then, if you'll notice the second half of the verse that he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. Folks, there's no doubt that God's going to be exalted. There is no doubt that he will. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Philippians chapter 2, 10 and 11 tells us that every knee someday will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the tragic reality is that some of the people that bow on that day will be in horror. Uh Uh-oh. But for those who are called by the name of God, they will bow in great joy. But what we can be assured of is that God will be exalted. And the two places he'll be exalted of reflect back to the two first sections of the psalm. He will be exalted in all of the earth, and he will be exalted among all of the nations. Our brothers going to Providence can be sure that God will be exalted in Providence, Rhode Island. We don't know the timing, but we can be sure that God will be exalted there. He will be exalted in Wake Forest. He will be exalted in Sri Lanka. He will be exalted in all the nations, no matter how much they rage. Isis will bow the knee before the king of the universe. And so we're then given an invitation, aren't we? At the end of the psalm here, let me help you to think through the implications of this for the Great Commission. We are given a task to reach the world for Christ. But what's sweet about this, what God commands this, and he in fact desires for us to be aggressively active in the Great Commission to take the gospel to the nations, to take the gospel to our neighbors, to speak it boldly. We're never to mistake the idea of cease striving from stopping in the mission. But a part of us doing the mission well is to stop for a while and come before the presence of the king. And what happens here is that the mission, the battle, we begin to recognize that the battle belongs to the Lord. And what happens to the person focusing in on doing the, the great commission that God's laid before us when that person stops, comes before the king, recognizes who that king is, and draws near in relationship? Verse 2 is the answer. They come out of that, and there's no fear. Notice what happens then to the missionary, to the person who's going with the gospel, is all of a sudden they come out of that and it's no longer Goliath who's the giant in the land. They're the giant in the land because they know their God and there's no fear. They're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And all of a sudden the mission has now a possibility. I don't care if they kill me. You can't hurt a good man. I'm close to God. And the mission marches forward because we've been still. So it's fascinating to me that the glory of God is revealed through our stillness before the king of the universe. And so perhaps today as we bring the sermon to a close, perhaps there's a word for you in the middle of this. Be still. Cease striving. Have no anxiety. Chill under the word of God so that you can know that God and he will be exalted in the nations. Be still. Cease striving. In regard to your busyness and your daily routine, take time in quiet before God every single day so that he might be exalted through you unto the nations. Be still. Chill. In regard to possessions and ambitions, be still when you're under discipline. Don't run from that because that's God's kind hand 
to work in your life that he might be exalted through you. Be still. Cease striving. Have no anxiety. Chillax. In regard to the time necessary to develop the character that will keep you close to God every day for the rest of your life. Let me pray for us. Father, it would be our great desire that you would work in our lives in such a way that through stillness, quiet, indeed the word Sabbath is completely appropriate here, that we would stop and know that you're God. And in doing so, Lord, would you be exalted in our lives and then by your grace somehow would you use us that your name might be more exalted among the nations. We thank you that your exaltation does not depend upon us. We thank you for the invitation, though, to allow us into that process of helping all know that you are the king before whom all will bow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.